The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. It's good to be with you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about the potluck to come and the feast that is to come and, and how good it is and, and how enjoyable it is and how it's a gift from you, Lord, let us turn to your word and feast on it this morning, God. May it nourish our souls. May we come to it hungry, looking for the truths of your good news to penetrate our souls, that we might be transformed to rejoice in you all the more this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please open up to Romans chapter 2. Uh, we will be looking at verses 17 through 29 today. It's page 940 in the Red Bible, page 1221 in the Children's Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible somewhere in the chairs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep. Uh, we love to give away Bibles here, and so please feel free to take that with you. So we'll start by reading God's Word, Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 29. Romans 2, 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Amen. Over the past couple of years, uh, my family has had a membership to the Neville Museum downtown. Probably for about three years we've had this membership. And in the three years of having a membership to the Neville Museum downtown, we have gone to the Neville Museum one time. Now you may be asking, why do you have a membership to a museum that you do not go to? Well, really, it's because we're more interested in the benefits of being a member at the Neville Museum. You see, if you are a member of the Neville Museum, you have also membership to this ASTC program, which is the Association of Science Technology Centers. And what happens is because you belong to that, you can go into all of these museums all around the country for free. So you can go into the Field Museum in Chicago for free. You can go into, uh, what is it, Discovery Museum in in Milwaukee, Discovery World. Uh, you can go in Children's Museum in Eau Claire. You can go into all of these museums for free. And if you go to just one, really, you pay for your membership. And so when it comes to the Neville Museum, people would probably consider us nominal members or notional members because we really don't have any investment or all that much interest in it. 
If you haven't heard the term notional before, notional is simply something that exists only in theory or idea. Maybe you've used the term nominal instead, which is a role or status that really exists in name only. See, while having a nominal membership uh, at this museum in downtown Green Bay, the Neville Museum, uh, is not necessarily hurtful or harmful. Maybe it's even encouraged to give them a little bit more money to operate with. A notional membership in the people of God is extremely dangerous. That is to claim membership amongst the people of God, but it has no bearing in your life. It makes no difference in your life. It makes no changes in your life. It can be disastrous in that it brings disrepute upon the name of Jesus Christ, but also disastrous because it can give you this false assurance that you are a part of the people of God and you are destined for heaven when really you are not. Notional Christianity is of epidemic proportions in Wisconsin. A 2005 Barna poll said this, the largest percentage of adults who are, quote, notional Christians, that is those who consider themselves to be Christians but are not born again, are found in Massachusetts and Wisconsin. That same poll also listed out that those that are most likely to say they're religious but not share their beliefs with other people are located in Providence, Rhode Island, and Green Bay, Wisconsin, probably a symptom of notional Christianity. And commenting on the passage that we're going to look at today, Ligon Duncan points out four different types of people. He says there are believers, Christians, true Christians, believers with an assurance of their salvation. There are believers without assurance of their salvation. There are unbelievers without assurance of their salvation. And then there are unbelievers with assurance of their salvation. Notional Christians, people who think that they're a part of the people of God, but really aren't. And this fourth category of people is who Paul is addressing today. Paul is addressing those who have an assurance that they are a part of the people of God, but they aren't. And he is addressing them to try to startle them from their false assurance, to drive them to repentance and to trust in Christ for their salvation. He is startling the notional Christianity. And that's what Paul is addressing, not only in Rome, but in our church today, in the church of Green Bay. Now, before we dig in, I just have to give a bit of a tangent Um, As we look at this passage, I'll be using this term, people of God, a a lot. In the Old Testament, the people of God were called Israel. Uh, They're also called Jews. But in the New Testament, the people of God is called the church or Christians, okay? And so you can see this throughout the New Testament where there's this replacement or this fulfillment, I guess I should say, of Israel who becomes the church. 1 Peter 2 is a great place where it talks about how all of the labels that are given, all of the, the privileges given to Israel are now given to the church. 1 Peter 2.9, uh, Peter says, But you, talking to the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possessions. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. These are all terms that were given to Israel, to the Jews in the Old Testament, but are now given to the church. And so as we talk about the people of God, and as we talk about this nominal faith, it not only applies to the people of God who were called Jews, but also to the people of God today who are called Christians. And so as we look at this passage, we want to answer a couple questions, really. The first question is, how do you know? How do you know if you're really a Christian or if you're just a notional Christian? You just have that title Christian because you were born in America, 
And the other question is, how do we minister to those? How do we minister to those who maybe believe that they're okay with God, but their life dictates something very different? We're going to look at three aspects of what it looks like to be the people of God here. The first is the help of the people of God. Look with me at verse 17. This is more a foundation of Paul's argument that is about to come next. But in verse 17, Paul says this. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Let's stop there. You know, as we read this passage and as we know what Paul is getting at with the Jews, we may read this with a negative connotation. You know, he starts up by saying, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law, Right, This relying on the law, again, might have some negative connotations, and it can. If they rely on the law as a ladder to climb salvation, it is an inappropriate relying on the law. But there is a good aspect to relying on the law. You see, we, the Jews, and we today rely on the law to teach us morality, to teach us right from wrong. It teaches us that stealing is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that idolatry is wrong. This is a good thing. We should rely on the law to teach us what is right and wrong. The law in the Old Testament also taught the people how to worship God, to worship him as he sees fit, to bring an unblemished sacrifice, to sacrifice it for your sins. It is good to rely on the law to know how we should worship God. They also relied on the law in a way that we don't quite do today, which is to rely on the law as a gift to to govern the civil, the political entity of Israel as a political nation. Like, what should you do if one man kills another man's ox? What if it's on accident? What if it's on purpose? These are all good things to help God's people. And so God has given his law to be a gift to them, to be a privilege for them. And it's been given to them as a gift, as a blessing, so that they can bless others with it. You see, when God was first forming the people of God, it started with this man named Abraham. And we read in Genesis 12 when God first approaches Abraham and says to Abraham that from his line he'll make a great nation, the people of God. And in Romans, sorry, Genesis 12, this is what we read. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, the people of God. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a people, into the people of God, and I am going to bless you for this very purpose, that you might be blessing to those that are around you. Now, how has God blessed his people? How, he, how has he blessed you and me? And how are we to be a blessing? Well, there are many, many ways that God has blessed us, but let's just focus on the ones that Paul points out here. First, he says that we are blessed with the law of God. Verse 17 says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law. Again, the law is not a bad thing. The law is a good thing. It is a wonderful thing when we rely on it for the correct things, for the guidance in life, for our morality, for how we are to worship God. 
And we are blessed with God's law in order to be a blessing. He says that you were blessed with the law to go be a guide to the blind. You see, Jesus, the Jews had God's word. They had his teaching. It was the embodiment of life and truth. It was a teaching of salvation. And they were given this great gift from God so that they could go and be a blessing to others, to go and teach others how they might know God. And so they're blessed with the law of God to be a guide for the blind. They're also blessed with a relationship with God. Verse 17 again says, you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. Boasting in God is a good thing. We are called to boast in God and to the Trinitarian God, to boast in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this isn't a bad thing. They were boasting that they knew the Lord God, that they had put their trust in the Lord God, that he had deemed them his special people to pour out his love upon. And so they boasted in God because they had a relationship with God. But their relationship with God, this blessing of God, was to be a blessing to others, to be a light for those who are in darkness, for those who are grasping for a Savior, those who are looking for a God that will satisfy their souls. And so we are blessed with relationship with God to be a light for those who are in darkness. Paul goes on to talk about being blessed and being a blessing. He says, you're blessed with the knowledge of God's will, to be instructor to the foolish. You're blessed with knowledge of what is excellent and true, to be a teacher of children. You know, our hearts are so wicked that so often we take God's word, God's law, and instead of seeing it as a blessing, we view it as a burden. Or we come to it very indifferently, really not wanting it to speak into our life at all. But David in the Old Testament, in Psalm 19, wrote this about the law. He said, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Make wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Is this how you see God's law? Is this how you see God's word? As, as rejoicing the soul, reviving you. I have a friend who owns a business and runs a business and, and loves Jesus. And seeing conflict in his workplace, he decided to do something about it. And so he taught the people how to handle conflict. And they actually had to practice it and work through it. Instead of talking to other people about it or just burying it deep inside, he taught them that you need to go to them one-on-one with humility and respect and, and share with them how they have offended you, how they have hurt you, and work towards reconciliation. And if that doesn't work out, then you need to bring someone else who's close to the situation to come with you to, to help you figure out how to be reconciled. And if that still doesn't work, then, then go to the boss and have him help come and bring you together and, and work this thing out. And so because it's a business, they even have a flow chart of this system of going one-on-one and then bringing someone else and then going to the boss. And when this flow chart is shown to other people, many times they'll come in and say, that is so brilliant. Did you come up with that? And they'll say, nope, Jesus did. It's in Matthew 18. This is God's truth. This is God's word. I have been blessed because God has taught me this, and now I can be a blessing to others. Friends, without God's law, we would not know what is right and good. We would not know what is true and excellent. 
We would not know our need of salvation or God's provision of a salvation. You see, the law of God, the word of God, is a blessing from God for the people of God to be shared with those who don't know God to bring them closer to God. We are helped by God to be helpers to the world and to help them towards God. Now, what does this have to do with notional or nominal Christianity? Well, as we see, instead of, instead of having this blessing of God's word humbling these Jews, these people of God, instead of it humbling them, it causes them to puff up, to be arrogant, to say, be like me, look how good I am, which is visible, tangible hypocrisy. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Again, Paul is building on the previous verses. He has said, listen, you have been blessed with instruction, with the word of God. And you are called to be a blessing to others. And you are called to apply it first and foremost to yourself. But listen, you are not practicing what you preach. And so Paul cites three of the Ten Commandments and draws them out to show how they're not living up to the standards they are proclaiming. First, he says, you know, you teach, do not steal. But don't you steal? Do you steal a little bit? Let's be honest. You know, I don't know the context as well as Paul probably did. He probably had some information that I don't have. But maybe these Jews were taking a little bit off the top of the tithe and offering. I don't know. But we have ways that we can steal that are not really offensive to our culture. You know, I know in college we stole music all the time to make worship CDs. It was called Napster, right? We just stole stuff like crazy and said, it's okay because we're worshiping Jesus, right? Steal cable, steal internet, steal Netflix. There's a whole lot of ways we can steal, isn't there? And yet it's so culturally acceptable that we just let it pass by. I'm curious, even in this passage, if, if Paul had in mind Malachi 3.8, which says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, God? And he says, in your tithes and contributions. I wonder if these men who were teaching to not steal were stealing from God by withholding that which rightfully belongs to God. And they would justify it with loopholes and rationalizations. And yet it was unrepentant sin. Jesus goes on, he says, they say, do not commit adultery. But then somehow they commit adultery. I'm wondering if, again, Paul had in mind Jesus' words in Matthew 5 where he says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in, uh, with her in his heart. My guess is that such sin in this culture where they're putting on this moral perfection was not something that was repented of, that was held accountable to. And so he's saying, listen, you say do not commit adultery, but aren't you doing the same thing in your heart? And then finally, he says, you who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? Again, speculating. I don't like to speculate this much. This is more than usual, but speculating. How could they do this? 
Well, I could see them going in and saying, hey, you have this little gold statue. That's an idol. You shouldn't have it. And so they, they take it and bring it away. And then they sell it on the black market or to people traveling by. Or, <coughs> or maybe they melt it down and they use the, the precious metal for their own good, for their own furnishing. Whatever it might be, Paul is addressing their hypocrisy, that they are not practicing what they preach. They are unrepentant about it. They are blind to it. They are notional Jews. And as a result, instead of leading people towards God, they are leading people away from God. Verse 24 says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The law is a blessing from God. It is a beautiful gift from God. But it is flipped around by blatant, unrepentant hypocrisy to drive people away from God. Now, as I studied this passage, there was, um, there's a difficulty in it. Because when he says, do you not practice what you preach, more or less, I'm thinking to myself, no, I don't. Like, like I preach these things, and I fail at every single one of them. I fail at all the things that he listed out here. I fail. I've committed adultery in my heart. I have chased after idols. I have stolen things. And those are things that I preach against. And so what do I do with this passage? Do you understand the tension? Paul's saying, don't be a hypocrite. Don't, don't, don't tell people. Don't preach this and not preach it to yourself. So what do you do with this? If we're honest, we can say we're all hypocrites, right? I mean, can you, just me? We're all hypocrites, right? And so what do we do with this passage? What do we do with this passage where Paul says, don't be hypocrites? Well, I think the answer is found in a single word in verse 23. And you see Paul goes from this questioning to making this statement in verse 23. And it's in this word boast. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. This word boast is to have a deeply deep sense of pride in yourself, to glory in something. So like, you know, if you get an A on a test, celebrate it. It's a good thing. But is that where you find your value and worth and identity? That's what it means to boast in it, to have pride in it. This is what makes me important. This is what makes me valuable. And so you see the problem with the Jews here is that they were boasting in the law, which means they were boasting in themselves, that they saw themselves as these perfect people that everyone should model themselves after. And so they weren't applying their teachings to themselves. They were only applying it to other people. Now, I know we don't do that, do we? We don't hear a sermon and say, so-and-so should listen to this. You never do that, right? Paul is warning them that you must not boast in the law, but you must boast in another who has kept the law perfectly for you. Throughout Scripture, time and again, we read, let the one who boasts Boasts in the Lord. Galatians 6 says, But far be it from me, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, to boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Boast in what? No one may boast in their own obedience to the law. Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, here is the difference between the false people of God and the true people of God. 
It is not that one is a hypocrite and the other is not. It's that one acknowledges their hypocrisy and the other is completely ignorant of it. You see, Paul later in the book of Romans confesses his hypocrisy. He says in Romans 7, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And so Paul is admitting his hypocrisy. And so how does this work? If in Romans chapter 2 he's saying, don't be a hypocrite, and then Romans chapter 7 he's saying, I'm a hypocrite. The difference isn't that, that true Christians are hypocrites and false Sorry, that one is hypocrites and one is not. They're both hypocrites. It's just that one is repentant over it and confesses it and seeks the Lord to change them and the other is completely ignorant of it. And so Paul ends that passage in Romans 7 saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, in this passage, Paul is encouraging them to confess their hypocrisy to see it in their heart and in their life and to to live a life of repentance where they're being changed and transformed and, and their sin is no longer dictating their life, but God works through them, through the Spirit, is bearing fruit in their lives. Dwight L. Moody once said this. He said, out of 100 men, one will read the Bible, the other 99 will read the Christian. Let me ask you, Christian, what gospel are people reading when they read you? Are they reading a gospel of moral perfection of where you're saying, okay, I got to get my act together. I got my act together and I can go tell others, get your act together just like I have my act together. If that is the gospel that you are preaching, a gospel of moral perfection, it will be repulsive to those who you talk to because they know that it is not true. They know that you are a hypocrite, but it will also be repulsive because it gives them no hope of salvation in their own hypocrisy. You see, the difference between a true Christian and false Christian is not that one is a hypocrite and the other is not, but that one acknowledges and repents of their hypocrisy and the other is completely ignorant of it. That one boasts in themselves and their moral resume and the other one boasts in Christ. That one's life is characterized by ignorant, unrepentant sin, and the other one is repenting and being transformed by the grace and love of God. And so God is calling out the hypocrisy of these stagnant Jews, and he's calling them to confess their hypocrisy and trust in Christ. Finally, we see the heart of the true people of God. I'm going to read through verse 25 through 27 and do something that, is, that I'm not exactly comfortable with, but I think is helpful for us to apply it to today. Uh, I want to replace a word in there. I want to replace the word circumcision with baptism. And the reason why is I think it helps us apply it to our own culture. And even we believe that, that baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision, that it took its place and so to show the good news of the gospel. But, but I want to replace the word circumcision with baptism and see how it might apply to our culture. So read with me verse 25 through 27. Paul says, For baptism indeed is of value if you obey the law. 
But if you break the law, your baptism becomes unbaptism. So if a man who is unbaptized keeps the precepts of the law, will not his unbaptism be regarded as baptism? Then he who is physically unbaptized but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and baptism but break the law. What Paul is saying here is that we cannot put our confidence in the sign of God's covenant of grace. God gave a sign of his covenant of grace through the sign of circumcision, and then he gave it through the sign of baptism. And Paul is saying, do not run to the sign for the assurance of your salvation. Run to the thing that the sign points to. You know, if, if you were in a school and someone had a heart attack, and you looked up and on the wall there was a sign that said AED, right, and had an arrow pointing down, you would not run to the sign, rip it off the wall, and take it to the person, would you? No, you would run to the thing that the sign points to. Don't put your hope in the sign. Put your hope in the thing that the sign points to. And so what does the sign of baptism, what does the sign of circumcision point to? Well, it all points to Christ. You see, circumcision is the cutting away of sin, the cutting away of flesh, which Christ did upon the cross when he was pierced for our transgressions. Baptism represents the washing away of sin, being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, who cleanses us from all our filth and sin. And so Paul here is saying, do not put your confidence in the sign, but put your confidence in the thing that the sign points to. He continues, and he says this must be internal, not just external. Verse 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision or baptism outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision or baptism is a matter of the heart by the Spirit not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul here is confronting the Jews in Rome. And he's not saying you are too Jewish. He's saying you are not Jewish enough. Your Judaism has stopped at your skin. It has not penetrated your heart. There should not just be an external circumcision or an external baptism, but an internal one done by the Holy Spirit. You know, I have been to way too many funerals, and I'm guessing maybe you have too, where people get up and they speak about the person who has died, and they will tell you what a rebellious, horrible lifestyle they lived. And then the officiant will get up and say, well, we know they're in heaven because they were baptized. Have you ever been to a funeral like that? I have. And what Paul is teaching us here is that if that sign never presses deeper into your heart, if it never changes who you are, if it never transforms your hope and your love and your obedience, then that sign is worthless. You see, these signs are good signs. There's nothing wrong with the signs. But if we don't press these signs deep into our soul, all they are are signs. My wife, Trish, and I have been married for 16 years. And imagine you know, one particular night where maybe my wife is feeling particularly lonely or unloved or whatever it might be. And she comes up to me and she says, Dan, do you love me? What if I responded by saying, well, I did give you a ring 16 years ago. Doesn't that count? Like, doesn't that tell you that I love you? Would that be a good answer? Ladies, good answer? No, right? 
You see, a ring is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. A wedding ring is a sign that you put on the other person's finger saying, I am covenanting with you. I am promising you to seek to love you and to cherish you every day of my life. But if that sign does not go into your heart, all it is is a sign. Does that make sense? The sign is good. The sign is wonderful. The sign is glorious. But only if it represents an internal reality. And so what Paul is saying here is you have that sign of baptism. That's a good thing, a great thing, but it must press down into your soul. And so circumcision, baptism, great and beautiful and useful signs, but only if they sink into our hearts and point us to Jesus. Let me end with this. Shortest illustration I've ever given, but I got to unpack it a little bit. On Friday, I got a headache. So I took a Tylenol, and I got better. That's the illustration. Isn't it so fantastic? Yay. Let me unpack it a little bit. Because I think there are some things that we do. Maybe this was your case this week. Certainly most all of us have done that. We've gotten a headache, take a Tylenol, and we get better, right? But there's some things that are happening in there that maybe we don't identify. The first thing we do is we identify there's a problem. There's something wrong with us, right? Our head hurts. This isn't good. Paul's saying, listen, you must identify. There is something wrong with you. You are a hypocrite. You must confess this before God. Identify the problem. But then, secondly, you have to identify there's a solution, right? You have to identify, okay, this, this aspirin or Advil or whatever it might be, Tylenol, I think is what I said, that is the solution that will help get rid of my headache, okay? So you have to identify there's a solution. But that's not enough, right? You can't just identify there's a problem. I'm a hypocrite. You can't just identify there's a solution, Jesus. It has to go further than that. You cannot take the Tylenol, hold it in your hand, and just hope that your headache goes away. You can't take it and type it to your head and hope that your headache goes away. What you actually have to do is you have to take the Tylenol and you have to consume it. It has to come down into your body, into your belly, and spread throughout your body. In the same way, knowing that you are a hypocrite is not enough. Knowing that Jesus is the solution is not enough. You have to ingest him. You have to bring him down into your soul. You have to bring him into your heart and let him transform your life. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today confessing that we're hypocrites. Lord, we we say this is right, this is wrong, and we know these things based on your scriptures, and yet we break those commandments in our heart, Lord. And so, God, forgive us of our hypocrisy, Lord. Pray that you would change us and transform us, that you make us less and less hypocritical, God, but that you would conform us more and more into the image of Jesus, that you would bear fruit in our life, and that we would go proclaiming a gospel not of moral perfection, but of grace and mercy and repentance. And so, Lord, pray that you would work deeply in our lives this day. And God, may our Christianity not just be notional or nominal or external, but may it go deep inside our heart and deep inside our soul and transform us from the inside out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.